Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week we read the story of the Council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, 1-21, in which Peter, Paul, and Barnabas debate with the Jerusalem church over whether Gentiles must follow the rules of the Torah. We discuss the need for boundaries and commonly held practices that bind a community together. We wonder at Peter's insistence that God works outside those boundaries and wrestle with the balance of tradition and experience. And we recognize that no matter what boundaries we set, we must always be prepared that God might be working something new among us, as God did among the Christians of the early church. Thanks for listening. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm doing all right. How are you? I am doing great. You had a birthday this week. I did have a birthday, yeah. Your second pandemic birthday. It was really sweet. My daughter, who is three, was super excited about it. And so <laughs> she woke up my my sweet wife at like five in the morning to um, to set up like surprises for me. And so at like five o'clock in the morning... My wife and my daughter made this big banner for me that said, happy birthday, daddy. And then my daughter like tied a red ribbon around the chair I sit in at the table and they wrapped up. She wrapped up some of her presents for me, <laughs> like her, like her, her toys that she has. She wrapped them up. So I got a, for, for my birthday, I got a stuffed ostrich and Ooh. a little clay heart that I can't remember where it came from. And also like a little magnetic letter A. It was... <laughs> That's, it sounds like a children's book. Like, I don't know, like this, this, the, like the simplicity of the somewhat constrained existence that we have during the pandemic. Yeah. Like you don't go around shopping and try to find the perfect thing and yeah. like whatever, like you just, you tie a ribbon on someone's chair. <laughs> That's and exactly see right. what in the house you can wrap up for them. Perhaps an ostrich. Yeah, right, but no, it's, it's true. all fair game. <laughs> it is, and I will say that that I do think that's true. That you know, the what's possible is decreased, and also my sense of expectations. Like that's one of the best yeah. birthdays I can remember, to be honest with you. And it's yeah. because like I had no expectations that my birthday ought to be like anything. Yeah, and so it was like everything that happened was just amazing. I I I loved it. Yeah. Funny how that works. Funny how that works. All right. Well. This week, we are in Acts chapter 15, which is kind of the, it's a famous council in Jerusalem where the Christian community, which is sort of divided as we saw previously into Christians who are Jewish in origin and Christians who are Gentile in origin, and they're trying to sort out like, what is what do we do with that sort of ethnic and religious difference? Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting text. It harkens back to some themes that we've seen before. Yeah. Anything else you need to say before we look at our text for today? I think there's other background that we'll need to discuss, but we can probably do it along the way. I think that makes good sense. Yeah. So we're in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. 
and I am reading in the Common English Bible. Some people came down from Judea teaching in the family of believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom we've received from Moses, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas took sides against these Judeans and argued strongly against their position. The church at Antioch appointed Paul, Barnabas, and several others from Antioch to go up to Jerusalem to set this question before the apostles and the elders. The church sent this delegation on their way. They traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, telling stories about the conversion of the Gentiles to everyone. Their reports thrilled the brothers and sisters. Mm. What do you understand to be going on at the beginning of this text? Well, you know, one of my first questions, and it may be that this is a situation where we need a little bit more background information to understand, but when they talk about the issue of being circumcised according to the laws of Moses, are they really talking about the circumcision itself? Or is that representative of a broader, you know, is, is this really the issue of following the law at all? Or is it the issue of circumcision? How do you how do you understand that? No, that's a great question. And, you know, I think there is some debate about exactly to what extent they thought people needed to follow the law, yeah. but it's definitely bigger than circumcision. So circumcision is kind of the shorthand way of saying y'all need to yeah. follow the law of Moses. I mean, I was thinking as I read that verse about the last text we talked about and how we talked about, you know, the eunuch's question, like, what is to prevent me from being yeah. baptized right now? And the answer is basically nothing is to yeah. nothing. And so then I started wondering, like, is would a requirement to follow the law be something that would be seen as a barrier? But it's not quite the same as a barrier because it's not like, you know, in the case of a eunuch where because of something about his body, he is prevented from, right. you know, he didn't make any choice. This is just who he is. And that's not the case with the law. Like anyone can decide to take on the law, but it's it raises the investment. You have to be a little more invested yeah. in this from the get go. So if the idea is that you're just trying to draw people close enough that they can sort of be pulled in by the, I keep thinking of it as a magnet, magnetic force of the faith. Yeah. Then I guess I could see it. I guess I could see it as something barrier-like. Yeah. Is that what you think is sort of at stake here? I mean, I think that's one way of getting at it. Yeah. And whether that's going to be how the apostles, whether Peter and Paul and Barnabas come down on that, let's remove the barriers, you know, I don't think it's going to end up being as simple as, hey, we could get more converts to the faith if it wasn't so hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I do think that's actually part of it. But I, but I, I think, think that's really part of it in this text. Yeah, there's more. Yeah, there's kind of more theological depth one I think can plumb there. But but also I think I think you're you're right on. So the position that's put from the people from Judea, I mean, the way they say it is pretty like clear cut, unless you are circumcised according to the custom, you cannot be saved. So you must follow the law in order for Jesus to have any effect, I think is how I read that. Is, is that how yeah, you read that? Yeah, that's how I read it. Yeah, they, they're not, um, there's no mincing of words there. Then Paul and Barnabas argue strongly against, and at this point, we don't get their argument. We'll get a little bit of it later, but it's like, they seem kind of like two intractable positions, which have very opposite impulses. Yes. Yeah. So it seems like the church at Antioch then is like, we don't know what to do now, <laughs> right? We've got, you know, we've got this strong argument. We don't really know. So they appoint Paul Barnabas and some of the others of the Antiochian Christian community 
to go and ask the apostles in Jerusalem, what should we do? Yeah. And so they're appealing to, they want some sort of ruling from the central, from the central 11. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a note in my study Bible from Amy Jalavine that when Paul discusses this issue, he presents it as something that's settled by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But in this text, it's basically settled by the ritual committee. Yeah. Right? It's like you bring it to the group of people and and figure and, and they they wrestle with it. And yeah. so I'm I'm really interested in in what impact that has and what I don't know. It it that, that seems like a I don't know if you would say that's a Christian thing to do. Maybe it's also a Christian thing to do. It seems like a really Jewish thing to do. <laughs> yeah, no, I, lo- I love that. And I, you know, I think your question about is this the way that Christian communities would deal with this? I think it depends on which Christian community we're talking about. Yeah. I'm a Presbyterian. And one of the things that we say about ourselves that we lo- is that we like to do things decently and in order, <laughs> which you can tell. Yeah, um, I love that. <laughs> that. We like committees and we're nervous about the Holy Spirit. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that we get nervous about is how do you distinguish the movement of the Holy Spirit? From like, yeah, I don't know, like you ate some cheese too late at night and it gave you weird dreams or whatever. And then you're like, oh, and so we want to make sure that we're doing like the godly thing and not yeah. the like lactose intolerant thing. the cheesy thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think in a, I think in an ideal world in my tradition and maybe in this text too, we'll have to see when we get there, is that what would happen is you would have a community of elders who actually discern the movement of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So it is those two things together. Like, yeah, what is God up to? We pay attention to what God's up to, and then we make decisions based on that. And you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a hard thing because we humans, especially now, we're going to a group of it seems men who are at the center of authority, yeah. and you know, like all the things that that the gospel that we just read has yeah. been sort of warning us against. Yeah. Now we're going back to them, <laughs> and sort of hoping that they're going to be able to discern what is the right thing and not be pulled by these other forces of sort of worldly power and authority that they are swimming in. Yeah. So good good luck, guys. All right, so then we get uh, the arrival in Jerusalem. So picking up in verse four. When they arrived in Jerusalem, the church, the apostles, and the elders all welcomed them. They gave a full report of what God had accomplished through their activity. Some believers from among the Pharisees stood up and claimed, the Gentiles must be circumcised. They must be required to keep the law from Moses. Okay, so here we have the first faction that speaks is affirming the same position that the Judean believers had brought with them to Antioch, that mm-hmm. Gentiles need to follow the Torah if they want to mm-hmm. be, be Christian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the significance of that sort of view being affirmed within the community of the of the elders? I mean, I'm just trying to imagine what a huge level of change it would feel like to a Jewish person at that time who yeah. has spent their whole life, you know, living within this religious framework. And, you know, it already has been a big change to say, like, we're going to evangelize. Yeah. You know, we're going to look for widespread conversion to our faith. Yeah. And it seems like the Pharisees have gone with the flow pretty well there. Yeah. But now they're talking about a group within this newly forming faith community that would have a really completely different daily existence than they do. And, I mean, I don't know how they... 
it's hard. Like the Torah spends a lot of energy distinguishing between the followers of the God of Israel and people who are not followers. Yeah. And it is a little bit hard, I think, to detach the idea that like there's a chosenness that comes with certain obligations. Like if you believe yourself to be chosen and you choose God, like, yes, you can choose to enter into that covenant, but then you have to enter into that covenant and do the stuff. And so it seems to me quite reasonable that that is where they would start out. That like, we have had a lot of change already and this is, this is going too far. Yeah. I love that. And you know, this is at the beginning of Paul's ministry and Paul's ministry begins somewhere around the year 45 or the year 50. So we're within a couple decades of the death of Jesus. And so you imagine that some of these Pharisees who are named here in Judea are some of the very same Pharisees that were struggling with the actual ministry of Jesus. And then here they are, they actually, like at least these Pharisees are now Christian Pharisees. So they have come from like, you know, Jesus is not the Messiah to like, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. And I love what you're saying about there's only so far you can push people. And at what point do they move from what they believe is the core of their faith? They've already become Jesus-worshipping Pharisees. Now are they going to be welcoming Gentiles who aren't going to follow the Torah at all? I really appreciate that sort of like, let's, let's have a little compassion for how, for how far they're having to come. All right. So let's see how, let's see how. Let's see how this goes down. Peter responds. Verse six. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider the matter. After much debate, Peter stood and addressed them. Fellow believers, you know that early on God chose me from among you as the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and come to believe. God, who knows people's deepest thoughts and desires, confirmed this by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, but purified their deepest thoughts and desires through faith. Why then are you now challenging God by placing a burden on the shoulders of these disciples that neither we nor our ancestors could bear? On the contrary, we believe that we and they are saved in the same way by the grace of the Lord Jesus. I'm just curious when you read that for, coming from your perspective, what, you know, where do you want to dig in? I mean, what what is most striking to me is starts around verse eight. Yeah. And it starts with this statement, God makes no distinction between them and us. Yeah. That idea. And my question there is, what is the assumption behind that statement. I mean, I think this goes back to the story of the conversion of Cornelius in Acts chapter Mm -hmm. 10, and then the Mm -hmm. follow-up in Acts chapter 11. The essence of what's going on in that story, it's appealing back to the gospel narratives where, you know, Pharisees are saying we don't eat with Gentiles, right? There is a insider-outsider, pure and impure issue. Mm -hmm. What happens in the conversion of Cornelius is the Holy Spirit shows up to Cornelius and has him send people to go get Peter. And while the men are on their way to get Peter, Peter is having a dream on the rooftop of the house where he's staying, where a sheet lowers down from heaven that contains all sorts of non-kosher foods. And a, a voice, sheet, like a bed sheet, like a bed sheet. <laughs> yeah, like they're being full lowered. Full of food. Full of food. It's like a picnic. That's a weird dream. <laughs> yeah, it is. Okay. It's like a picnic. You know how you throw a oh you a know, picnic. Okay. Like a little thing over your shoulder. Well, you, you should know? call it a picnic blanket. A little then. picnic basket comes down from heaven with like <laughs> reptiles <laughs> with and birds and grits. in it. Yeah, yeah okay. shrimp and grits. Yeah, and a voice from heaven says, "Get up, Peter, kill and eat." So 
the heavenly voice commands Peter to eat non-kosher food. And Peter says, are you kidding me, heavenly voice? (laughs) Like, I've read Leviticus. I've read Deuteronomy. I know I can't eat those things because they're not clean. And then the voice from heaven says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. And then the voice goes back, or the sheet goes back up into heaven. And then it happens three times. Then right when Peter sort of comes out of his vision, then the men from Cornelius show up and invite him to come back with them to Cornelius. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Peter goes, ah, now I see what that dream was about. And then when Peter gets to the Gentiles in Caesarea, he says, God has told me that I should never call anyone unclean. So here we have Peter having an experience in which God tells him these distinctions that are made in the Torah between Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean, pure and impure, those don't hold anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not entirely clear whether this is God changing God's mind. I used to care about that, but I don't anymore. Or God saying like those distinctions that were written in the Torah were distinctions I never intended in the first place. Mm -hmm. But whatever the understanding, it is clear enough that what is being said is these sort of markers of purity and impurity don't pertain in the present situation when the Holy Spirit has been poured out at Pentecost onto all flesh. We don't make those distinctions anymore. And it's interesting to me that the understanding of that dream is not, you don't need to keep kosher anymore, Yeah, but is that God doesn't distinguish between people in that way. Yeah. And then that it circles back in this case to talk about whether the people need to keep kosher. Yeah. You know, like it does sort of all Yeah. all circle back together, but I think that illustrates really well in answer to my question of like what assumption is behind this statement and part of the assumption is that by keeping the law like by having some people keeping these laws and some people not keeping these laws, that it creates such a fundamentally different status in people's minds, like a different religious status, that if you believe that, if you believe that keeping the law makes you fundamentally different than others, even if anyone is able to come and join in and decide to keep the law, that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that happens in that story of Peter and Cornelius is when Peter gets to Cornelius and his family and they're baptized, the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius and his family and they start to speak in tongues, which is a sign of their blessedness by God. And they have not been circumcised or kept kosher or done any of the things. Mm -hmm. And so when Peter says in verse eight, God knows people's deepest thoughts and desires confirmed this by giving them the Holy Spirit. That's what he means, is the Holy Spirit came upon them even though they don't follow the law, the Torah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if God is going to interact with them, bless them when they're not keeping Torah, like who are we to say, we're not going to do that too? Mm-hmm. From Peter's perspective, now what you're supposed to do is look to see where this, where's the Spirit at work, like who, whose lives are showing the signs of the Spirit. And that's the only thing you should care about. Mm-hmm. Y- you can keep kosher if you want to, I think, for Peter. So if that's important to you, like by all means. But God is working outside of those boundaries, and so we ought not to enforce those boundaries or enforce those obligations on on someone else if God's not going to do it. Yes, and it's tricky. I mean, it's tricky today in the Jewish community. Like, it's always tricky. But if it's important to you to keep kosher, then it's hard to just say, it's important to me to keep kosher, but I know it doesn't matter to God. Like, (laughs) you know, like, then why is it important to you to keep kosher? Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are, you know... There are answers that people have to that question for yeah. sure. But if you don't believe that it that it's something that God requires of you, 
unless there's some understanding here that God might require this of people who are born into the people of Israel, but not people who convert to be Jesus followers from the mm-hmm. Gentile community. It's very, this is very sticky. Yeah. Peter in verse 10 describes the Torah as a burden. Why are you placing a burden or a yoke, it sometimes is translated, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on the shoulders of these Gentiles that neither we, that is Jewish Christians, nor our ancestors, that is the ancient Israelites and Jews, could bear? I'm just curious. Like, that's a pretty negative assessment of the Torah as a, as a burden or a yoke that is unbearable. Do you have thoughts about that? I mean, look, the idea of the Hebrew Bible is that when the Israelite people are brought into freedom out of slavery, that they become servants of God instead of servants of a Pharaoh. Yeah. And I I hear that terminology used certainly within the Christian community too, or at least parts of it. The idea that our job on earth is to serve God. Yeah. And so the metaphor of the yoke on its own, like as one of many metaphors, doesn't bother me particularly. Of course, in the Hebrew Bible, there are also... You know, there also is a God of grace and a God of compassion and a God of love. It's not it's not only a yoke. That would be not very appealing. But I I think there's just as much of a yoke presented by Jesus. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a free and clear. Everyone can do whatever they want. No, I think that's right. Yeah. And so this sort of interpretation of the Torah as simply as a burden is clearly sort of a Christianizing reading, I, I, yeah. I think, kind of placed in the mouth of Peter. Can I ask you one more question about verse 10? Mm -hmm. It starts out by saying, why are you putting God to the test by placing these burdens on the people? That's what my translation says anyway. Why are you challenging God by placing a burden on the people? Yeah, why are you challenging God? How do you understand that? For me, that's related to this Peter and Cornelius thing that that we were talking about a little bit ago. In verse 9, God Uh, made no distinction between us and them, but purified their deepest thoughts and desires through faith. Why are you challenging God? So so what I think what Peter said, and this is a pretty dramatic thing that Peter has done here, is to say, you're not just placing a burden on the Gentiles, but you are actually saying that the God has chosen not to observe these distinctions that you're now saying we must observe. So mm-hmm. you're saying God's wrong. That makes a lot of sense. I think without the the background of the Cornelius story and that dream, I read this idea of putting God to the test as if Gentiles accept the law and then are not able to do it perfectly, just as we are not able to do it perfectly and our ancestors have not been able to do it perfectly, that that will be a test for God. Like, will God be able to stand that sort of, Mm. I don't know if hypocrisy is quite the right word, but that the tension that's there, that you said you were going to do this and now you're not doing it, Mm. which has been, which has been like, almost like, let's just call a spade a spade. We're not going to do this. We haven't done it well. Our ancestors haven't done it well. They're not going to do it well either. And so we should just not try to get people to do it. But but the background of the Cornelius story does make that read differently. So then picking up in verse 12, the entire assembly felt quiet as they listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God did among the Gentiles through their activity. When Barnabas and Paul also fell silent, James responded, fellow believers, listen to me. Simon reported how, in his kindness, God came to the Gentiles in the first place to raise up from them a people of God. The prophet's words agree with this as it is written. 
After this, I will return and I will rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild what has been torn down. I will restore it so that the rest of humanity will seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who belong to me. The Lord says this, the one who does these things, known from earliest times. Therefore, I conclude that we shouldn't create problems for Gentiles who turn to God. Instead, we should write a letter telling them to avoid the pollution associated with idols, sexual immorality, eating meat from strangled animals, and consuming blood. After all, Moses has been proclaimed in every city for a long time and is read aloud every Sabbath in every synagogue. So this is James who, I mean, James is the brother of Jesus, we think, and he's an important, maybe the head of the new church that's in Jerusalem. And this is him kind of giving a proclamation about how this situation ought to be resolved. And he clearly here has come down on the side of Peter and Paul and and Barnabas. What do you make of the way he gets to his conclusion? I think, so this quote that he offers from the prophets is from the book of Amos. Yeah. And it actually, ironically, I think he he quotes the version that's in the Septuagint. Yeah. Which is a which is totally valid. Like yeah. I don't mean to invalidate the Septuagint. But the in the version that's in the Hebrew, after you rebuild, you know, the house of David, Israel like overpowers the Gentiles. Like <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a really it's a really different Yeah. It, the he, maybe that's why he quotes that <laughs> Septuagint. The Hebrew yeah. wouldn't make his point very well. It's such an interesting thing that's the Hebrew like says something like they will inherit Edom. Yeah. And the the Septuagint, for whatever reason, reads Edom as Adam, hum, humankind or humanity. And so the rest of humanity will seek the Lord instead of you will inherit Edom, which is like like you're saying polar opposite in, in yeah. meaning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to do with that, but it, but it is an interesting detail. Yeah, it is an interesting detail. And in some ways, for me, it doesn't quite, the quote itself doesn't really answer the question of what does it look like when other peoples seek the Lord? Yeah. Like what is, what constitutes seeking the Lord? Should they convert and follow the laws (laughs) of the Torah or not? But but James would say no, they should not. So, so, so I don't, I don't know in terms of how he, how he gets to his, his decision through Amos. I'm really intrigued by that because I had not really been paying attention to, I was like, oh, of course that, of course that supports his point. Cause like, why else would he say it? <laughs> but, but now that you've pointed out that maybe it doesn't actually support his point, like, I think I might actually be convinced, which is interesting to me because if that is the case, then what he's done is he said, I have this experience now. It's actually not his own experience. I have this reported experience of the Holy Spirit moving among the Gentiles. And that's mm-hmm. actually the decisive factor. God is working among those people. And now I can go back to my scripture knowing that. And when I read it, what I see is, oh, yes, this is in the scripture. Mm -hmm. But if you had read that scripture without the testimony about what's happening among the Gentiles, you might not have concluded that that's what that scripture means. And so the, the experience of what God's doing in the world leads scriptural interpretation instead of the other way around. Which I think that is true to life. Yeah. I think that's true to life. And I like that way of thinking about it. The question of what should be asked of them next is not clear from scripture. Yeah. It would only be clear from what's happening in the world around them. No, I think that's right. And I think that's really important. And it seems like 
the believers in Jerusalem who have this concern have not themselves had direct experience of the Holy Spirit moving among mm. the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just that they're having to rely on their, their own interpretation of their own experience. It's that they're having to rely on someone else's interpretation of someone else's experience. They have yeah. to trust that Simon really saw what he says he saw and change their own behaviors based on a secondhand account from somebody you may or may not entirely trust. Yeah, I mean, you need to trust, either trust or not trust, but like figure out whose stories you're going to believe because you're not going to get all the experiences yourself. And that's hard. So the conclusion that James comes up with is not anything goes, mm-hmm. but anything goes except mm-hmm. pollution associated with idols, mm-hmm. sexual immorality, eating meats from strangled animals, and consuming blood. What do you make of those particular things as the boundary? You know, the first thing I thought was these are not easy things <laughs> these are not easy things to to keep yeah i would guess at least some of them i don't know maybe there is some recognition of the power or holiness in <laughs> i was going to say the consumption of meat the ability to kill an animal and eat it and sex like their appetites that could use some kind of check yeah on them and these things have proven quite hard for humans to keep in check yeah. over the over the you know millennia of human existence. The other thing that these prohibitions have in common is that they are in one way or another required of non-Israelites in the Torah itself. Yeah. Did you want to say anything about that? Part of that is that prior to the flood, everyone is supposed to be a vegetarian. And then after the flood, it seems like maybe there is some recognition from God that God's going to have to meet people part way and allow for the consumption of meat. Mm-hmm. But there are constraints put upon it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, pouring out the lifeblood is is one of those constraints. So that's what made me think immediately of, of the Noahide laws. Yeah, no, I think that's right. You're in Genesis chapter 9 in the sort of P version of the end of the flood story and the prohibitions there are do not eat meat with its life that is its blood in it mm-hmm. and and i will surely demand blood for a human life so if you shed another person's blood your blood will be required of you which are clearly related to these things and those commands were made on noah and his descendants which means on all humanity mm-hmm Mm-hmm. There's this idea of worshiping idols, I think, also doesn't occur there, but in the commands in Leviticus and Deuteronomy about sojourners, people who are not Israelite but live amongst the Israelites, one of the things that is required of them is that they not worship mm-hmm. other gods in the community of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so I think that one maybe maybe comes from there. But, but it's kind of mm-hmm. interesting because now what James has done is say, okay, I'm removing the distinction between Jew and Gentile, but that doesn't mean there's no expectations of anyone. It just means the expectations on Gentiles are the expectations from the Torah of all humankind. So they have to take that step. They don't have to take the next step, which is to be Torah obedient. Yeah. It's kind of a nice compromise. It kind of is a nice compromise. Yeah. It's rooted in scripture. Yes. There's a logic to it. Yes. Yes. And it, it has sort of a category in the mind of the Pharisees It gives you, as you're saying, it's rooted in scripture. It gives you a foothold. There is a category of people in the world that God has these particular requirements for. And so you can understand who your Gentile neighbor is, even if they don't enter into the covenant of Israel. I don't know. It gives you you a framework. Yeah. 
All right, Amy. So that brings us to the point in our conversation where we think about where this text intersects with contemporary life. Where is your head going? You know, it's so interesting to read this text as as a Jewish person who moves within progressive communities yeah. where the status of the law is also complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, there are 613 commandments meets vote and they are I would say they are like in play in my communities, but they don't necessarily carry the day. Mm-hmm. And and it is complicated. Like I as we were talking about the sort of intimacy and like who you could share a meal with and who you would, you know, just sort of know that certain standards of ritual are being kept in their household. I mean, I know who among my friends keeps a similar level of food observance as I do. And I know who I need to make sure I do only vegetarian for them because our meat rules are different and who I can't cook for them because my kitchen's not kosher enough, but I can like it. it is a lot. It's yeah. a, it is a really interesting thing as a progressive Jew to live with these meats vote in our world, but not as all inherently understood to be binding. Yeah. And just yesterday I was talking with a committee member at my synagogue and and we were talking about having an offering in our uh, an adult offering in our community where we looked at all of the 613 meets vote because folks in my community might not necessarily know what all of them are and maybe thought about like each taking take pick 5 that you don't do and try to do them for a while and see <laughs> how see how they fit see how they change you and your relationship to the community or your relationship to God or don't, which is a very non-Orthodox way of thinking about mitzvot, (laughs) for sure. But I do find that the specificity of these teachings, even if I don't treat them as laws, is meaningful. And I can see how it would be very confusing to say, these are laws, but we're going to adjudicate between them. But I think that's, I think we all do that anyway. And I I don't know. I like having a a big set of very specific laws to interact with. And I think it is, I can see how it would feel cumbersome or burdensome. But I also think it's really rich and personal and intimate and weaves religion into your life in a a really like moment by moment way that is worth preserving. Did I just make a case for Judaism? I didn't really mean to do that. (laughs) I just feel, I feel like the presentation of the law in this text is so either you're totally going to do all of it and it's going to be so much and take over your whole life or we might as well pretty much forget it or just pick these couple of you know big broad ones and it's just interesting to interact with this text as someone who who lives with the law in a in yet another way and i and that's how a lot of jewish folks do no i really love that and you know it's it's nice to hear from your perspective, the value of this kind of spiritual practice. And I think some of us, I mean, and I'm surely one of these who doesn't have consistent practices that sort of orient me to the world through the lens of my faith. And to me, you're not advocating Judaism so much as you're advocating those kinds of practices. Although although you're Mm -hmm. also saying like, and Judaism has a great framework for doing this, which which I think is a really helpful interpretation. Where does this text bring you? So for me, this text is, I'm really focused in on this idea that the spirit kind of moves where the spirit will move. And it's up to 
those of us in the religious community to sort of get on board with what the spirit's doing, <laughs> mm-hmm. which to me is really f- both freeing and kind of frightening at the same time, because who knows where the spirit's going to go next, right? And so for a Presbyterian who likes things to be decent and in order to say though what we need to do is figure out where God is working, and then we need to get on board with that work in the world instead of saying we need to figure out like what are the rules by which we're going to operate and then operate within those rules. But it's a really beautiful and a really freeing idea. And this is, in my mind, this is the way that this text works, is that they are working based on Peter's experience and also Paul and Barnabas, but largely Peter's experience of the Holy Spirit coming up on the Gentiles, Cornelius and his family, in ways that were recognizably true. And then they say, well, if God's working there, who are we to say God can't work there? So mm-hmm. we got to figure out a way to get on board. And then they go back and they sort of reevaluate their understanding of their own religious practices. They go back and reread a scripture that maybe doesn't say what they end up saying that it says. But they go back and they see, oh, now we understand what the scripture says. And they, they reinterpret their scriptures. Like, it is a pretty profound shift. And I yeah. love that idea that w- what we do is see where the Spirit is at work. And that, if the Spirit's at work there, that's good enough. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, coming from Mercy Church, like, a lot of people look at my community and they say, homeless people, like, is God really at work among the homeless people? And, like, I, if you meet some of the people I know, you will absolutely see the fruits of the spirit there and you will know. Mm -hmm. This idea has been really important in the LGBTQIA community among Christians to say, you know, we've got all these rules about where God can and cannot work, but look where the spirit is, right? And when you meet people who are expressing love and kindness and peace and patience, like the spirits at work there, so you can quote scripture at me all you want, but the Holy Mm -hmm. Spirit is at work there and you got to take that seriously. Yeah. That's beautiful. And it is making me remember that in the same ways that I experienced sort of navigating the world of Jewish law and practice myself, and and it's complicated and ever-changing and messy that, like, I feel like I'm hearing you say that in your practice as well. Like, yes, you set some basic ideas down of, like, this is what I think it looks like. Yeah. And also be aware that, like, you might see some new iteration of it somewhere yeah. that that you hadn't been able to recognize before, and that will change things, and you will change with the things, and that that's just how it goes. I think that's right, and and that sometimes that is based on other people's testimony to what they have seen the spirit mm-hmm. doing, which you yeah. yourself may not have actually seen. Yeah, and you got to yeah. trust people's you got to trust people's testimony, which might bring you to reconsider your own practice and your own interpretation of scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Next time, we're continuing on into some of Paul's letters. We're going to, for the next three weeks, uh, we're going to be in the book of Galatians. Next week, we'll be in chapter 1, 13 to 17, and 2, 11 to 21. Yeah, good. Okay, I look forward to it. All right, Amy. I'll see you next time. All right. Always a pleasure. Bye. Bye. for joining us for this episode of Bible Worm. If you'd like to hear the rest of our conversation about this text, join our Patreon at the Extended Worm level or higher to get access to extended episodes. You'll also find other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more, starting at just $4 per month. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. 
Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are so grateful to all of our supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next week as we'll read Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, verses 13 to 17, and 2, 11 to 21. Until then, keep on digging.